0: All right, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Um, I had a podcast fall through. One of my guests got sick, so I rescheduled with him, and I figured that I would just do a solo episode and um, record something pretty quick. We'll, we'll see how long it goes. Um, but yeah, after, after my last podcast with Dan Sanchez, I've, I've been trying to uh, write a lot more. I started writing, I believe, on Monday every day. Um, and I hope to continue that. We'll, we'll see how that goes. So I've released something every single day since that that podcast um, or since Monday. Uh, and I recommend everyone go check out that podcast with Dan Sanchez. He's the, um, I forget what his specific position is. I think he's the editor-in-chief of the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, he was somewhat of my mentor while, while I was in their fellowship, their Hazlitt Fellowship. And we we talked about um, the importance of writing and how writing helps you master ideas, and that's just one of the things we talked about. But the overall theme is um, is along the lines of like how to collect yourself and and how to speak properly and how to write properly and the importance of ideas and um, how if you collect yourself you can you can be the better representation of the ideas that you want. Um, the world to adopt. So uh, it, it it kind of is is the Jordan Peterson principle of like, you know, cleaning your house before you you judge the world. And I figured, you know i I haven't written as frequently as I'd like to, uh, especially since I'm out of school now. And I also haven't returned to a lot of like the source material that first got me interested in liberty and the ideas of freedom. Um, I haven't returned to them. You know, in a very long time. So I have been writing on Substack about uh, some of the things that first got me interested in these ideas, and um, hopefully, as I've written in in one of my Substack articles, I I plan to continue to have a podcast every week, um, and then, you know, if I don't have any ideas for what to write about, I'll just return to that that podcast and write about that podcast, Uh, at the very least, just so it helps me retain what I'm what I'm talking with people about. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend everyone go listen to that podcast with Dan Sanchez. I'll, I'll link to that in the description below after, after the stream is done. Um, but yeah. And if anyone comes into the comments, please let me know how the audio is. This isn't in my, uh, usual recording environment. Um, so if anyone stops in and listens live, just let me know in the comments. Um, but yeah, so it is now two days since election day. I'm recording on November 10th for the people who are listening to this later. And, um, yeah, they're still counting in Arizona. It looks like, it looks like, uh, masters is behind quite a bit. Uh, Carrie Lake might be pulling ahead. Um, and yeah, there wasn't as big of a red wave as people suspected. And there's a lot of, um, Analyzing of of the electorate right now and and why it wasn't as big of a red wave, and one of the the bigger narratives that's that's coming out um, is that Trump was defeated and and most of his endor- endorsements uh, were pretty weak, and I think that that's that's probably right. Um, there's also accusations of a lot of uh, you know manipulation going on and. I haven't looked into that myself, but I, I know some people who are very interested in that stuff and and maybe I'll bring them on to talk about it later and make the, the case for that. But I mean, it, it is quite clear that at the very least people in Arizona, people in Gallatin County here, people in Missoula County uh, can't count at the very least. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of narrative building right now. And and for for the people who were saying that, uh, you know, that Trump and all of his endorsements looked weak and DeSantis looked strong. A lot of this, I think, is people trying to um, speak certain narratives and and um, speak certain agendas into existence. I think a lot of this is speculation as to what actually voters were thinking about. and And when anyone says that, you know, DeSantis is the leadership of the GOP now. I think again that that is just narrative building. they, they want their narrative to come out um, on top. and and really when you control the narrative, I think there is something about um, that and the effect that that takes on uh, you know the electorate's position. Um, as, as I talked about with uh, Benjamin Oblo about uh, the Russian Russian and Ukraine war, control of the narrative is very important. And I think that the reason we saw people flip so quickly, like especially the Daily Wire people, they immediately started saying that this was a a repudiation of Trump um, and that we need strong leadership in the GOP. And, you know, like, I I think that what that is, is a competition for the narrative to see um, if, if speaking that narrative into existence can uh, potentially determine that, that future, uh, and determine what voters are thinking about. Um, so at the very least, we, we do know that the GOP will have to go through some soul searching. And I've been saying that since it appears that the GOP is very weak right now and, and fractured, if they want to win libertarians over, win Libertarian and Conservative votes over and, and strengthen their base. Um, instead of deciding DeSantis, uh, Trump, or Liz Cheney, I think that the the clear option should be Rand Paul and Thomas Massey. Um, the, the Daily Wire folks are saying that uh, Tr- Trump looked very weak on Election Day and DeSantis looked very strong and, and strong. Candidates outperformed. And and when I look at strong candidates, um, at the strong candidates who won, I I also see that Rand Paul and Thomas Massey did very well and soundly defeated uh, their opponents. So, um, though DeSantis was very strong as, as a governor in Florida, I think an even stronger case is Rand Paul and Thomas Massey, especially since they have experience at the federal level. And I mean, they've been consistently right on COVID spending and Ukraine, which are all top issues right now. Whereas DeSantis, all we, all we really praise him for is, um, what he's done as governor. And I hope instead of running in 2024, he, he stays governor. Um, I think he terms out in 2026. So I hope he finishes his term as governor and instead, uh, the, the party looks in the direction of, of Liberty and, um, looks towards Rand Paul and, and Thomas Massey types instead, because I, I think that if they adopt that as, as the spirit of the party um, really that's, that's a message and, and a a uh, ticket that I think a lot of people can rally behind um, especially if Rand Paul does really well with uh, the investigations into Fauci over the next two years. Um, but a lot can happen. A lot of this is speculation. I think a lot of people should question any, real analysis that is happening in any, um, <laughs> attempt at saying, this is what the the voters were thinking and not, um, you know, and not voting for a huge red wave. I mean, it, it is obvious that very, uh, that some places got redder and and some places stayed blue. Um, and in hindsight, I think that that probably is, uh, expected, especially since Roe v. Wade, um, was a, was a big issue. On the ballot. Um, Here in Montana, we're looking pretty dang good. uh, But I think it was a mistake that LR 131, I believe is the name, was on the ballot. um, That was the uh, Born Alive Abortion Bill. And it it was a resolution. And I think that actually brought out a lot of uh, Democrats and is probably why we didn't go as red as we would have liked to. Uh, But yeah, all of that's just kind of my thoughts on on the last two days and and the election. Um, But I just wanted to share my screen and show some of my Substack writings since, uh, like I said at the beginning, I'd like to start recording more um, or writing more. And uh, I kind of want to give you guys a taste of what I've been doing. Um, since it was election day, I decided to write about Lysander Spooner and his uh, perspective on voting. So on election day, I released a sub stack. Um, it's called Vote. It's your right. And then it has an asterisk and it says, but your only options are people who want nuclear war with Russia or nuclear war with China. Um, and then I kind of explain Lysander Spooner, give a little background about Lysander Spooner. And then I include an excerpt um, from Lysander Spooner's No Treason Treason about his perspective on voting. So I just wanted to read that for you guys. And then I'll also attach this article um, in the description after we're done recording. And I see that there's someone listening right now. Um, Can you type in the comments if it if the audio sounds all right. This isn't my typical recording environment, so just let me know if if that's possible. All right, so it's not letting me share my screen, so I'm, I'm just gonna read it instead. All right, so um I just say what I'm reading today, because I think that this is gonna be a series that I'm gonna do, is just whatever I'm reading for the day, I'm gonna write about. If I don't have any other things to talk about. So uh, as a little introduction to No Treason, I say Lysander Spooner's No Treason, Natural Law, or the Science of Justice and Vices Are Not Crimes were immensely influential to me in high school. And I first discovered his works while researching um, John Locke and Natural Law for my honor civics class during my senior year. Uh, We were preparing for a We the People competition the center for civic educations we the people competition in washington dc and um one of the topics that i was assigned in that class was on natural law and the philosophical basis for the constitution and uh the principles that really this this country was built on and and i'm, I'm very fortunate to have uh found lysander spooner and um his works on natural law and uh I continue, for those unfamiliar with his work, Lysander Spooner was a radical abolitionist lawyer who opposed the Fugitive Slave Act and made the case that slavery is prohibited by the Constitution under a textualist and originalist interpretation. He also argued that slavery was contradictory to natural law. Spooner's The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, written in 1845, was the most widely circulated abolitionist writing at the time, and notably influenced Frederick Douglass who abandoned William Lloyd Garrison's reading of the Constitution after reading Spooner. Um, Frederick Douglass had adopted Garrison's view that the Constitution um, promoted slavery and actually protected slavery. And then after reading Spooner's The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, uh, he actually then moved away from Garrison and adopted Spooner's interpretation, uh, which is that slavery was unconstitutional. And then like Douglas, Spooner was also associated with and and potentially inspired John Brown of the C. John Harper's Ferry. Uh, There is some evidence that, I I think he actually wrote about it, that Spooner um, was attempting to kidnap a governor and hold him hostage uh, until John Brown was released. So he also defended John Brown. Um, And and Spooner isn't as widely known today as he often, as he often gets overshadowed shadowed by abolitionists like Garrison in history classes. But I think a lot of today's originalist arguments can still be credited to him. And interestingly, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas also cited Lysander Spooner in his concurring opinion in the landmark Second Amendment case, McDonald v. Chicago, in 2010. And, and Thomas's main arguments were that uh, the anti-slavery movement led to the 14th Amendment. And and in making that case, he actually cites Lysander Spooner, who argued that slavery violated the, the natural right of all men to keep and bear arms for their personal defense. Uh, and then in my my favorite work of Lysander Spooner's, which is No Treason, Spooner argues that insofar as the United States Constitution is contradictory with natural law, it's not legally binding on anyone because nobody can truly be understood to have consented to the to the document. So. Um, this actually came after or after the beginning of the Civil War, because Spooner was um, a defender of the Constitution and then he became radicalized by the Civil War and then argued that the Civil War was only justified if its purpose was to end slavery. Um, because fundamentally Spooner did believe in natural law and um, and justice. So, so insofar as the civil war was to end slavery its purpose was to end slavery he was for it but he argued that it was not justified if its purpose was to preserve the union and he argued that the constitution is no contract that it binds nobody and never did bind anybody and that all those who pretend to act by its authority are really acting without any le- legitimate authority at all so I, I just included a quote um from later and no no treason in here um and then what, what originally interested me about no treason in high school was what I considered its contribution to social contract theory and its denial of the consent of the governed. Um, Locke in his second treatise of government uh, kind of justifies the modern state uh, by arguing that the consent of, of the governed is necessary. And, and He then goes on to um, say that tacit consent is enough. So like uh, simply voting or simply using public roads, for instance, uh, that is a form of tacitly agreeing to the system since you're participating in the system. That's that's kind of the argument. And um, I think no treason really builds on this and criticizes this. And I don't understand Lysander Spooner and and No Treason to be a rejection of the fundamental principle that government is justified by the consent of the governed. I think that really he takes John Locke to its um and, and the second treatise of government to its logical conclusion, uh, and and he says that yes, the consent of the governed is necessary, but but rather uh he denies that this consent actually exists today and actually occurs today. And he, he goes as far as denying any form of tacit consent as being, um, um, legally binding. So, um, I think fundamentally he still argues that the consent of the governed in, in a form of contract and consent is necessary for any legal arrangement, but he denies that, that simply voting is something that actually, um, uh signifies consent so yeah i uh i'll i'll attach the link to no treason as well in the description after uh we're streaming um and i hope you read the entirety of it there are also some audiobooks that i might be able to find and and put in the description if if you prefer that um and i really hope you appreciate uh the work as much as i do um And since I wrote this on election day, uh, I included an excerpt from No Treason on Voting, and it goes as follows. So he writes, of the one-sixth that are permitted to vote, probably not more than two-thirds or about one-ninth of the whole population have usually voted. And then I updated that um, for today's terms, and it says... So what I say is, of the about three quarters that are permitted to vote in the U.S. today, not more than two thirds, or about one half of the whole population, have usually voted. And then Spooner continues: many never vote at all. Many vote only once in two, three, five, or ten years in periods of great excitement. And we see this with presidential elections. Um, people often don't vote for their their local candidates, candidates or they don't vote in state elections, but uh, people kind of rally in um, exciting presidential races. And Spooner continues: No one by voting can be said to pledge himself for any longer period than that for which he he votes. If, for example, I vote for an officer who is to hold his office for only a year, I cannot be said to have thereby pledged myself to support the government beyond that term. Therefore, on the ground of actual voting. It probably cannot be said that more than one-ninth or one-eighth of the whole population are usually under any pledge to support the Constitution. Um, In recent years, since 1940, the number of voters in elections has usually fluctuated between one-third and two-fifths of the populace. Uh, It cannot be said that by voting, a man pledges himself to support the Constitution unless the act of voting be in perfectly voluntary one on his part yet the act of voting cannot be properly be called a voluntary one on the part of any large number of those who do vote. It is rather a measure of necessity imposed upon them by others than one of their own choice. On this point, I repeat what was said in a former number. I mean, yeah. And this just goes to the idea that like, if, if you think about the amount of people who don't vote, like in, in the modern, in the modern terms um, that, that is, about one half of the whole population does not vote in every election. Um, so essentially what Spooner is saying here is like, like the act of voting is not voluntary for these people. Um, they're even opting out. Isn't a voluntary choice. You, you often hear that uh, um, they, they choose to opt out. They, and therefore they choose uh, and, and they consent to whatever, everyone else is choosing they they kind of throw their hands in the air and and they're they're willing to accept what others are voting for and and he kind of he he denies this here and spooner continues in truth in the case of individuals their actual voting is not to be taken as proof of consent even for the time being on the contrary it is to be considered that without his consent having even been asked a man finds himself environed by a government that he cannot resist a government that forces him to pay money, render service, and forego the exercise of many of his natural rights under peril of weighty punishments. He sees, too, that other men practice this tyranny over him by the use of the ballot. He sees, further, that if he will but use the ballot himself, he has some chance of relieving himself from the tyranny of others by subjecting them to his own. In short, he finds himself without his consent, so situated that if he uses the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he must become a slave. And he has no other alternative than these two. In self-defense, he attempts the former. His case is analogous to that of a man who has been forced into battle, where he must either kill others or be killed himself. Because to save his own life in battle, a man takes the lives of his opponents. It is not to be inferred that the battle is one of his own choosing. Neither in neither in contest with the ballot, which is a mere substitute for a bullet, because as his only chance of self-preservation, a man uses a ballot. Is it to be inferred that the contest is one into which he voluntarily entered, that he voluntarily set up all his own natural rights as a stake against those of others to be lost or won by the mere power of numbers. On the contrary, it is to be considered that in an exigency exigency. I'm going to start that sentence over. On the contrary, it is to be considered that in an exigency into which he had been forced by others and in which no other means of self-defense offered, he, as a matter of necessity, used the only one that was left to him. Doubtless the most miserable of men under the most oppressive government in the world, if allowed the ballot, would use it if they could see Any chance of thereby ameliorating their condition, but it would not, therefore, be a legitimate inference that the government itself that crushes them was one which they had voluntarily set up or even consented to. Therefore, a man's voting under the Constitution of the United States is not to be taken as evidence that he ever freely assented to the Constitution, even for the time being. Consequently, we have no proof that any very large portion even of the actual voters of the United States, ever really and voluntarily consented to the Constitution, even for the time being. Nor can we ever have such proof until every man is left perfectly free to consent or not, without thereby subjecting himself or his property to be disturbed or injured by others. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who votes from choice and who from the necessity thus forced upon him, We can have no legal knowledge as to any particular individual that he voted from choice or consequently that by voting, he consented or pledged himself to support the government. Legally speaking, therefore, the act of voting utterly fails to pledge anyone to support the government. It utterly fails to prove that the government rests upon the voluntary support of anybody. On general principles of law and reason, it cannot be said that the government has any voluntary supporters at all until it can be distinctly shown who its voluntary supporters are as taxation is made compulsorily compulsory on all whether they vote or not a large portion of those who vote no doubt do so to prevent their own money being used against themselves when in fact they would have gladly abstained from voting if they could there, thereby have saved themselves from taxation alone to say nothing of being saved from all the other usurpations and tyrannies of the government. To take a man's property without his consent, and then to infer his consent because he attempts by voting to prevent that property from being used to his injury is a very insufficient proof of his consent to support the Constitution. It is, in fact, no proof at all. And as as we can have no legal knowledge as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who are willing to be taxed for the sake of voting, we can have no legal knowledge that any particular individual consents to be taxed for the sake of voting or consequently consents to support the constitution. At nearly all elections, votes are given for various candidates for the same office. Those who vote for the unsuccessful candidates cannot properly be said to have voted to sustain the constitution. They may, with more reason, be supposed to have voted not to support the constitution but specifically to prevent, or especially to prevent, the tyranny which they anticipate the successful candidate intends to practice upon them under color of the Constitution, and therefore may reasonably be supposed to have voted against the Constitution itself. This supposition is the more reasonable inasmuch as such voting is the only mode allowed to them of expressing their dissent to the Constitution." Many votes are usually given for candidates who have no prospect of success. Those who give such votes may reasonably be supposed to have voted as they did with a special intention not to support, but to obstruct the execution execution of the Constitution and therefore against the Constitution itself. As all the different votes are given secretly by secret ballot, there is no legal means of knowing from the votes themselves who votes for and who votes against the Constitution. Therefore, voting affords no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution. And where there can be no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution, it cannot legally be said that anybody supports it. It is clearly impossible to have any legal proof of the intentions of large numbers of men where there can be no legal proof of the intentions of any particular one of them. There being no legal proof of any man's intentions in voting, We can only conjecture them. As a conjecture, it is probable that a very large proportion of those who vote do so on this principle, that if, by voting, they could but get the government into their own hands or that of their friends and use its powers against their opponents, they would then willingly support the Constitution. But if their opponents are to have the power and use it against them, then they would not willingly support the Constitution. In short, Men's voluntary support of the Constitution is doubtless, in most cases, wholly contingent upon the question whether, by means of the Constitution, they can make themselves masters or are to be made slaves. Such contingent consent, as that is, in law and reason, no consent at all. As everybody who supports the Constitution by voting, if there are any such does so secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for the acts of his agents or representatives, it cannot legally or reasonably be said that anybody at all supports the Constitution by voting. No man can reasonably or legally be said to do such a thing as assent to or support the Constitution unless he does it openly and in a way to make himself personally responsible for the acts of his agents, so long as they act within the limits of the power he delegates to them. As all voting is secret by secret ballot and as all secret governments are necessarily only secret bands of robbers, tyrants, and murderers, the general fact that our government is practically carried on by means of such voting only proves that there is among us a secret band of robbers, tyrants, and murderers whose purpose is to rob, enslave, and so far as necessary to accomplish their purposes, murder the rest of the people. The simple fact of the existence of such a band does does nothing towards proving that, quote, the people of the United States, unquote, or any of them, voluntarily supports the Constitution. For all the reasons that have now been given, voting furnishes no legal evidence as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any who voluntarily support the Constitution. It therefore furnishes no legal evidence that anybody supports it voluntarily. So far, therefore, as voting is concerned, the Constitution, legally speaking, has no supporters at all. And as a matter of fact, there is not the slightest probability that the Constitution has a single bona fide supporter in the country. That is to say, there is not the slightest probability that there is a single man in the country who both understands what the Constitution really is and sincerely supports it for what it really is. The ostensible supporters of the Constitution, like the ostensible supporters of most other governments, are made up of three classes. One, knaves, a numerous and active class who see in the government an instrument which they can use for their own aggrandizement or wealth. Two, dupes, a large class, no doubt, each of whom, because he is allowed one voice out of millions in deciding what he may do with his own person and his own property because he is permitted to have the same voice in robbing, enslaving and murdering others that others have in robbing, enslaving and murdering himself is stupid enough to imagine that he is a free man, a sovereign, that this is a free government, a government of equal rights, the best government on earth and such like absurdities. Three, a class who have some appreciation of the evils of government either do not see how to get rid of them or do not choose to so far sacrifice their private interests as to give themselves seriously and earnestly to the work of making a change so that's where the excerpt ends that i included in in the sub stack um and yeah i mean that was very insightful for me going through um my honor civics class my senior year which i've i've talked about in other podcasts um I, I brought on my, my uh, civics teacher many times. He's now actually a, um, he's now a legislator in Montana. He was, was just elected as a legislator in Montana and he um, introduced me to Tom Woods, who then introduced me, uh, his podcast introduced me to Lysander Spooner and then I dug deeper and I found his essays on uh, natural law, which, which informed a lot of uh, the work that I was doing in that class. And then luckily I, I found this and it, it was very informative and, and kind of uh, built upon um, the natural law theory that I was researching in, in second treatise of government Locke's second treatise of government. And like I said before, I think that he, he brings Locke to his logical conclusion because Locke, I mean, it's almost as if he's, he's, He's right all along with the homesteading principle, with building this, you know, uh, he's constructing this natural law theory. But then it's almost like he takes a step back when when he's talking about consent of the government. And he says that uh, tacit consent is sufficient. And I think Spooner recognized that it's not. And and I think should really be seen as someone who corrects John Locke. Um, I, I don't think he's arguing Against John Locke as much as he is uh, taking it to its logical conclusion, and then I'm I'm going to try to share my screen again. Um, I don't know why it uh, why it wasn't letting me earlier. Yeah, it's not going to let me. But um, I also in in this Substack I included some tweets from the day. Um, from election day and i might continue to do this I, I haven't since this post but um if if people think it's a good idea i might continue to do it i included my tweet that actually got quite a bit of interactions it got a i think it's over 300 likes now um i just said it, it's also the title of this sub stack which is vote it's your right exclamation point and then it has an asterisk and then below it says Your only options are people who want nuclear war with Russia or people who want nuclear war with China. And then I also attached some, some memes that I think uh, really complement what Spooner is saying here. There's also another tweet that is uh, um, more serious and and relevant to election day. Glenn Greenwald said uh, he, he quote tweeted Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who said, Many states don't allow mail-in ballots to be counted before Election Day, but many races can't be called until mail-ins are counted, which can take over 24 hours. This is normal, but some GOP are laying ground to claim any race not called tonight is suspicious. Don't fall for it. And Glenn Greenwald said, There's nothing normal about the world's richest country being unable to count votes for days or even weeks after Election Day. If you want to create such a system, don't be surprised when people see other countries counting all votes the same day and thus distrust this one. And then um, I attach another meme that said uh, "libertarianism," a noun, and it defines libertarianism. It says the radical notion that people are not property. If you get a little, um, <laughs> a little. Uh, Uh, picky with that definition and say the radical notion that people are their own property Um, but it's good enough and then uh, I also attached it it was actually um, Drew Kester she she tweeted uh, a, a graphic from the Mises caucus that is a quote of Michael Malice that says people will say with a straight face that having one choice for dear leader is tyranny but having two is freedom um, and I think that only kind of gets to what, what Lysander Spooner is talking about here. And then also what I was trying to say in my tweet about, yeah, you, you do have a vote to write, but, or, well, uh, a right to vote, but uh, um, your, your only options are uh, Tyrant 1 and Tyrant 2. And then I included another tweet that I actually tweeted a long time ago. Uh, that, that says, imagine me, a kid in college who doesn't pay property taxes and has no kids in public school, receiving a ballot to vote on school boards and levies in my town so I can dilute the say of the parents who send their kids to school and those who pay property taxes. And this is a this is actually a realization I had. Um, I think my senior year of high school, I received a ballot for the first time I had had just become the age to vote and um, and we were voting for a levy and the levy was for property taxes within the school district that I attended, but I actually lived outside of the school district, but was still within the district that I could vote for the levy. It was really weird. And then I was voting on whether people who own property should pay higher property taxes to pay for the school that I go to. And it just felt, you know, even though it would benefit me, it would benefit my education. It just felt really weird that I would have any say over that. Um, that that it wouldn't be constrained just to the people who would have their their property taxes increased. And I really saw that as a as an attempt to dilute the the say. It's like it's like almost a perversion of of the idea that, you know, we shouldn't have taxation without representation. It's like it's like we have way too much representation in this case. Um, it's taxation with too much representation. It's not even, it, it, I should not have a say over over these tax increases. And that was a, a realization really early on that I think um, informed my political beliefs uh, today and were kind of foundational. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm a libertarian. And then I also included a tweet from Dave Smith that says, just remember today that democracy is not on the ballot. The U.S. is not a d- democracy. It's not a republic. It's a fascist oligarchy that allows for a minimal amount of participation from the citizens however you feel about democracy this ain't one and I mean that's the funny thing is like a lot of people get so angry at the idea that uh Democrats say that this is a democracy and that uh democracy is on the ballot and uh <laughs> you know the the typical republican response is well like this isn't a democracy this is a republic but I wonder if deep down Republicans ask themselves uh, is the United States at all mirror um, the ideals that they want for this country. I think often what is conflated uh, by Republicans and what I used to do as a conservative is that you kind of conflate what you want the U S to be with what it is. (laughs) It certainly isn't what, um, what the founders intended. So um, maybe it ought to be a Republic, but it, it, certainly isn't today. And um, yeah, it, it's another f- kind of funny thing that that I was uh, talking about is that like all the Democrats keep saying that democracy is on the ballot, but we really need to stop pretending that, that democracy is a good thing in the first place. Like this used to be something that that was taught in, in civics classes. And luckily I was taught this in mine because I had a really good teacher, but um, founders did not intend uh, to have democracy. And if you've read plato, if you've if you've uh, learned about the death of Socrates, you've learned you've learned why democracy is terrible. Um, and democracy, as it's currently understood, is either uh, mob rule um, like it's taught by Plato, or it's a form of liberal hegemony. And uh, I think both are terrible. Both are bad should be rejected and we should stop pretending they're good. But I will say if if we are to define um, democracy as uh, the most representative of the people where the people are sovereign, I think we can make a case as libertarians that, well, capitalism is the most democratic, but typically that's not the definition that is used. Uh, Typically what what is being talked about is uh, liberal hegemony and um, and mob rule and then uh yeah i I attached some more um tweets here uh the libertarian party new hampshire on election day said if if we elect enough republicans and maybe things can finally go back to the way they were in late 2020 gets the point um and then i have a few more memes attached but uh yeah i hope i hope everyone checks out that Substack. i hope People give me some feedback if if I should continue doing things like this and not, maybe I should continue uh, recording podcasts like this where I cover what I wrote about in my sub stacks. But um, I just wanted to read one more uh, that I wrote yesterday. This is now, I believe, the fourth, fifth. Yeah, it's the fifth sub stack that I've written. Um, so definitely go subscribe. Give me some feedback share them if you like them um but yeah so the 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 podcast that i wrote yesterday or the Substack that i wrote yesterday i titled spooner and the science of justice um and the subtitle is lysander spooner's proto-libertarian natural law so yeah i um, after yesterday's post about spooner and his perspective on on voting i, I write I, I said that I returned to Spooner's Natural Law, The Science of Justice, and um, thankfully I discovered this essay while researching John Locke and natural law during my senior year of high school for my honor civics class. We were preparing for the Center for Civic Education's We the People National, National Competitions in D.C., and this was the essay that helped build much of the framework for the arguments that I made regarding natural law. Um, kind of the, the structure of the class was that we would, we were assigned different units out of a textbook that, that we were assigned. And, um, we had the option to pick which unit or which chapter out of the textbook we wanted to focus on and and really emphasize. But I chose unit one and unit four, which, uh, focused on the philosophic philosophical framework of the United States. And then, um, the structure of the U S government and so while we were preparing preparing for these competitions we were supposed to write four-minute essays um answering a question that we were assigned so i was i was assigned my my group my unit was assigned uh, a question about natural law and um, classical republicanism and uh in, in one of our presentations at the competition, I, I opened up with a quote from this essay by Lysander Spooner, um, which is also attached below in, in, in the excerpt or the passage that I, that I attached below. But um, this quote says, natural law is the science which alone can tell us on what conditions mankind can live in peace. And I really like this quote because often the way that natural law is portrayed, um, in, in, you know, law school or philosophy classes is it's, it's almost like this mystical thing, um, that, you know, is very arbitrary. And I think that Spooner grounds natural law and says, no, what, what, what it is, is is, it's, it's the conditions for peace. Um, you know, we, we, we might have many cultural disagreements, in the world but natural law is is the very basic legal framework um that that can uh you know maintain justice and peace and i i really appreciate that now especially after you know going four years uh through an undergrad program through a very liberal philosophy program at at the university of montana and and hearing many arguments against natural law and i also took um as an undergrad, I was able to, uh, take a real, uh, law class at the law school. I, I got accepted to, um, I knew the the professor, so they allowed me, uh, I got an overwrite and, and it allowed me to take the class at the law school with law students. And I mean, the whole thing essentially was a rejection of, of natural law. And, and it kind of, um, the weird binary was like, we either have like grounded positive law here where laws, whatever it says it is um, laws, whatever the law on the books are. Uh, and then their uh you know, caricature of what natural law is, which is like this weird mystical thing that, you know, only religious people believe, but, but natural, but Spooner he he was an atheist. Uh, at least I I think he was an atheist. He definitely wasn't a Christian. I might be thinking of Thomas Paine, but Th- Thomas Paine was definitely an atheist, um, anti-theist. But uh, I, I believe Spooner was an atheist. If if he may have been a deist, but I definitely know he wasn't a Christian. So the idea that he had kind of this grounded natural law, I think, is is uh, a compliment to libertarian natural law and and i think it very much coheres with um murray rothbard's non-aggression non-aggression axiom um as i think you'll you'll find below so uh in the article in this passage that i've attached so um i'll just read this small little passage it's it's much shorter than the other one um But yeah so the first few paragraphs of natural law the science of justice it it was written in 1882 um, are as follows the science of mine and thine the science of justice is the science of all human rights of all a man's rights of person and property of all his rights to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness It, it is the science which alone can tell any man what he can and cannot do what he can and cannot have what he can and cannot say without infringing the rights of any other person it is the science of peace and the only science of peace since it is the science which alone can tell us on what conditions mankind can live in peace or ought to live in peace with each other these conditions are simply these first that each man shall do towards each other all that justice requires him to do as for example that he shall pay his debts that he shall return borrowed or stolen property to its owner and that he shall and that he shall make reparation for any injury he may have done to the person or property of another the second condition is that each man shall abstain from doing to another anything which justice forbids him to do as for example that he sh- he shall abstain from committing theft robbery arson murder or any other crime against the person or property of another So long as these conditions are fulfilled, men are at peace and ought to remain at peace with each other. But when either of these conditions is violated, men are at war, and they must necessarily remain at war until justice is reestablished. Through all time, so far as history informs us, wherever mankind have attempted to live in peace with each other, both the natural instincts and the collective wisdom of the human race have acknowledged and prescribed as an indispensable condition Obedience to this one only universal obligation, that each should live honestly towards every other. The ancient maxim makes the sum of a man's legal duty to his fellow men to be simply this, to live honestly, to hurt no one, to give everyone his due. This entire maxim is really expressed in the single words, to live honestly, since to live honestly is to hurt no one and give to everyone his due. So yeah, that's, that's the first part of um, natural law or the science of justice. And I think it's pretty beautiful. And um, I I think it really, like I said, it really complements libertarianism and it coheres with it. I think it uh, is proto-libertarian and um, I mean, very consistent with what, uh, you know, today's libertarians consider non-aggression principle which is the the fundamental axiom of of libertarianism so you know back in 18 uh when was this written again it was 1882 uh we had a proto-libertarian and you know um i talked a little bit about his history and uh his history as an abolitionist and how uh prominent he was at at the time but um he was also a lawyer. He, he also was a competitor to the, uh, he, he started a competitor to the post office and which was illegal. And uh, the federal government tried to shut him down. He also practiced uh, law illegally. He he wasn't um, a legal lawyer, but he, he, uh, he was still, you know, he was still practicing law. Um, and I think that he was a practicing libertarian too. Uh, the, the, the libertarian idea, I think of, of law school and, um, it it would reject law school and, and the current way that, that we, uh, uh, have lawyers in the United States, you know, you, you have to have like an accredited university that you go to before you can go to a law school. And then you, you, have to go through law school before you can take the bar exam and then the bar exam then makes you a lawyer. Um, but Lysander Spooner didn't do any of that. Uh, and I actually really hope that Montana, uh, gets rid of those requirements. I know California doesn't have those requirements and that's why Kim Kardashian is now practicing in California. Um, but I think that that's the way that it should be. I think we should have competition and, and, um, we shouldn't have state Impose accreditation rules we should have competition of um legal ideas because i mean after going through uh the non or the undergrad program at the university of montana and seeing how liberal it is uh, wouldn't it be great if we had other you know institutions other universities that could compete with the the state universities that have kind of more libertarian and and spooner um Spooner's perspective of of law so yeah that that those are kind of my thoughts on on Spooner I wanted to return to him um, because I haven't read him in a long time I also have not been writing as much as I said at the beginning of this podcast um and all of that was inspired by my my podcast with Dan Sanchez and his his recent endeavor to write every single day and um I'm kind of I'm 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 really looking up to him in in his attempt at doing that. And he he's continued to write and, and put something out every single day. So uh, starting with my podcast with him last Wednesday, I, I hope to continue to release a sub stack either on the podcast and the content that was discussed in the podcast. And maybe I'll take like segments out of each podcast that I uh, uh, find interesting and highlight those so I can retain this stuff better or maybe I'll do stuff like this and continue to lean into um, the writings that, that influenced me early on so yeah definitely give me feedback uh, let me know what you think uh, comment below also check out my interview with Dan that I'll link in the description subscribe to my Substack. share them around if you like them and give me feedback subscribe to me on YouTube Odyssey Apple Podcasts and all the other podcatchers. I'll link to those below and then I'll also have my link tree in the description too. Thanks so much for listening and hopefully I'll be back next week with uh, an interview um, since I rescheduled, but thanks and make sure to subscribe.